0: Welcome back to Mythological Throwback Thursday. I'm Alex, and this is the podcast where we go through mythological figures and tales to uncover the unusual, forgotten, or misunderstood bits of the stories we tell about our distant past. Last week was the summer solstice, also known as Midsummer, and the pagan holiday of Letha. It marks the longest day and shortest night of the year, so to celebrate we thought we'd salute the sun with an episode dedicated to sun gods from around the world. As you might expect, many of the places we're covering today are thought of as fairly sunny locales. We'll talk about ancient Greece and Egypt, as well as Hawaii. But first, let's talk about the Aztecs, who had plenty of sun gods to go around. The Aztecs believed the world was cyclical, being destroyed and remade on a predictable basis by the squabbling gods. Each new incarnation of the world had a different god taking on the role of the sun, so there's quite a few to talk about. Nanahuat was the smallest and weakest of the Aztec gods. A sickly, humble sort, his name meant covered in sores. In this iteration of the universe, Nanahuat was selected to become the moon in a sacrificial rite of fire. His counterpart, Texizdacat, handsome, wealthy, and strong, was chosen to be the sun. They both purified themselves for their sacrifice in their own ways. Nanahuat with acts of penance, Texizdacat with expensive offerings. The other gods had built a huge bonfire with a platform above it from which the two gods were to leap. But when the time came, Taxistokat shied from the task of self-immolation, his courage failing him. Nanahwat had no such fear, though, and flung himself from the platform into the flames, taking up the mantle of the sun. Stung by his upstaging, the ashamed Taxistokat followed, taking up the less glorious task of being the moon. Kind of nice that the sun, such a powerful life-giving source, was once the underdog. A more prominent Aztec god was Tislaquepoca, the Smoking Mirror, a mercurial schemer who both gave and took away. In the first iteration of the universe, he turned himself into the sun. However, his brother and rival, Quetzalcoatl, was angered by this and knocked him out of the sky. In revenge, Tislaquepoca destroyed the world. Typical sibling rivalry. Too bad about the collateral damage, though. Tislakapoka was up to his old tricks again with a later incarnation of the sun, Dlalok, the god of rain. Dlalok was married to the beautiful goddess of fertility and flowers, Shoshiketzal. However, Tislakapoka kidnapped her. Dlalok was inconsolable and a years-long drought ensued. When the pleading prayers for rain became too much for the grieving sun god, he answered them with a ceaseless torrent of infernal flames that burn the world away and turn the survivors into birds for some reason. The other gods had to build the whole world over again. Thanks ever so, Thalok. Huitzilopochtli was yet another sun god and perhaps the most important of them all. He replaced Nanahuatz, the first sun god we mentioned. As the pantheon shifted, he was preeminent in the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, and was credited with defending the daylight from the depredations of his siblings. Every night his sister, moon goddess, Coyolxalwi, would lead an attack on the daylight, embarrassed by the way in which their mother became pregnant. It involved feathers, which is legit pretty embarrassing. Every morning he would beat them back, but the Aztecs believed the status quo could only be maintained by lending their strength and body heat to him. Because of this belief, Thousands were sacrificed, their hearts plucked from their bodies, and offered to the god. But hey, the sun rose every single day, so... The ancient Greeks also had a few sun-related gods, like Helios, the personification of the sun itself, and Apollo, who was really more sun-adjacent. Helios was responsible for the movement of the sun across the sky, drawing it with his chariot and team of horses. Like many sun gods, he was worshipped as life-giving, and as the son of Titans, he was quite powerful. While mostly a minor deity, not a member of the twelve Olympians, he plays a role in many famous myths. His son, Phaeton, had a particularly tragic tale. Desiring to drive the chariot of the sun, Helios allowed him to take the reins, but Phaeton lost control. Zeus had to strike him down, to prevent him crashing the sun into the earth and setting fire to it. A tragic story, and for some reason, the name of a Volkswagen model. Not sure they read all the way to the end there. We've mentioned Helios before, in our episode about Persephone. He sees everything that happens during the day, riding across the sky, and he witnessed Persephone's kidnapping. He's not the nicest god, and gets pretty condescending towards Demeter. Bit of a jerk, honestly. Another myth you might know Helios from is depicted in the Odyssey. Helios owns a herd of sacred golden cattle, very special and very valuable, which Odysseus and his men kill and eat in an especially desperate part of their journey home. Helios does not tolerate trespassing and theft though, and once again Zeus steps in. Zeus destroys the ship and kills everyone aboard, except for Odysseus, who manages to cling to some wood and survive. He has John Snow-level plot armor, understandably. Helios mainly featured as a side character in Myths, rather than the primary one until later on, once people started associating him with Apollo. Apollo was also associated with the Sun, as his twin sister Artemis was with the Moon. One of his nicknames, Phoebus, means bright. Apollo had an extensive portfolio. Prophecy, herds and flocks, music, poetry, and only later added the sun as an aspect. It's possible that this later addition was thanks to Egyptians, who identified Apollo with Horus. Or it may have been that the ancient Greeks just loved Apollo so much they preferred their fave to have the all-important role of the sun, rather than Helios, who wasn't even an Olympian. Speaking of ancient Egypt, there were a number of prominent solar gods in ancient Egyptian mythology, like Horus, Ra, and Atum, Ra is a central figure in ancient Egyptian texts and art, considered the king of the gods. He wasn't the first god, of course, that's Atum, who we talked about in the rain gods episode in relation to his offspring, Tefnut. Ra has been combined with Atum in some dynasties, into one god called Atum-Ra. Ra actually joined with a few gods over the centuries, with Horus as Ra-Horakhti, and with Horus and Amun during the New Kingdom. As a triad god-figure, Ra represented the Midday Sun, Horus the Dawn, and Amun the Sun in the Underworld. Ra was associated with the pharaohs, and in some periods they would include Ra in their names, just to make it completely obvious to everyone. The Greeks, who had a lot of trade with ancient Egypt and ultimately conquered them, saw Ra as an equivalent to Zeus, so they let Ra hang around during their dynasty. There is a lesser-known sun god for ancient Egypt, though, called Kupri. The name Kupri was derived from scarab beetles, as the ancient Egyptians were fascinated by them. Their word for scarab beetle, Kupa, meant he was coming into being. They considered scarab beetles to reproduce from nothing, owing to their practice of laying eggs in dung and rolling it up to take it to a safe place. Ancient Egyptians would observe larvae burrowing out of a ball of earth and consider it entirely new life. Cupri was thus a god of creation. The rising sun in particular was associated with him. Cupri was thought to push it across the sky, as the scarab beetles pushed their dung balls. At dusk he would be swallowed by his mother Nut, and pass through her body to be reborn every morning. And you thought Sisyphus had it bad. As symbols of resurrection, the sun, and protection, Scarabs were highly desirable on jewellery. Scarab amulets featuring falcon wings were placed over the hearts of entombed mummies, so as to protect their owners in the underworld when it came time for their hearts to be weighed on the scales of justice. These amulets weren't just popular with the nobility, however. Scarabs of all sorts have been found, indicating that they were also popular with regular Egyptians. While Cupri had no real formalised cult, His worship was at its strongest in Heliopolis, incidentally named after the Greek god of the sun, and it is thought that most Egyptian temples contained a statue to him. While he was most commonly depicted as a scarab beetle, he was also occasionally given the form of a man with a beetle for a head. In our Rain Gods episode, you may remember we talked about Lono, so here we'll mention Kane, the Hawaiian sun god and creator of earth and man. The Hawaiian creation myths are heavily influenced by those of the Polynesians who settled there, especially the Tahitians. Successive waves of settlers further morphed these myths over time, so that the figure of Kane has a more primary role in some stories, while in others he's of equal importance to the other three major gods, Lono, Ku, and Kanaloa. Either alone or as part of a group, Kane breathed life into the first man, formed out of clay, and was the first to bring light when before there had been only darkness. There are earlier myths where Kane is not the first god, and is in fact the son of the first god, Eo. But even in those tales, he is still the lord of the sun, as well as the creator of fresh water and the source of all life on earth. As such, Kane worship is a daily part of life, not restricted to seasons, like Ra He is associated with the more powerful chiefs and their families, representing those with the most power and nobility. Next time you're enjoying the summer sun, you can contemplate the thousands and thousands of years that people around the world have been venerating it as a source of generative power and the foundation upon which they built their way of life, a role we often take for granted today, as removed from the agricultural process as many of us are. Thanks for listening to Mythological Throwback Thursday, brought to you by Beyond Books App, available on iOS, for iPhone and iPad. Theme music by Nix. Show art by Chelsea Butler. If you like the show, please rate and review on iTunes. We'll be taking a little summer vacation for the next few weeks, but make sure to follow us on Twitter at MythologicalT, that's the letter T, and let us know what myths you'd like us to talk about next make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening now so you'll know as soon as we're back. We'll see you soon. Ish. Until then.